Hi, everybody, and welcome to my channel. My name is Gay Gerard, and I'm delighted to have a very special guest here with me today. We've got Anne Osborne, who's a fruitarian of over 30 years, which is absolutely extraordinary. Anne is an author, and she's a very well-known and popular speaker at both the Woodstock Fruit Festival and the UK Fruit Festival. And I'm just delighted to have Anne with us here today. So welcome, Anne. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to the interview. Yeah, thank you. Um, so let's get started and wind the clock back. You're now currently living in Australia, which is awesome, but you mm. grew up in the UK. So can you tell us a little bit about your childhood? What was it like growing up in the UK and who did the cooking in your house? What was the kind of diet and lifestyle that you grew up on? Well, I was very fortunate to have a very lovely family. My mother was a very beautiful soul. She was probably the kindest person I've ever met. And she was also very non-judgmental. And so I grew up in a very loving environment. My father worked hard to support the family and we had a lot of fun. We, always, we didn't have a lot of money, but we always went on holidays every year, even if it was just a very simple holiday. My dad had an allotment as well, which is in the UK. Um, I think either during or after the Second World War, when there wasn't a lot of good produce about because of rationing, people were encouraged to grow their own fruit and veggies. And so councils bought areas of land and divided them into allotments and rented them out at a very cheap rate so people could grow their fruit and veggies. So I grew up on a very standard meat and two veg diet, but very little processed foods because my mother always cooked from scratch. So if we ever had a bought cake or a bought pudding, um, it was very rare and it was kind of, you know, something unusual. So I grew up on an obvious diet, but because my father had this allotment, which was great. And as kids, we'd go there because we didn't. So we'd go and we'd sort of fossick about in the allotment. So yeah, um, so I grew up on this standard diet, but quite a non-processed diet and supplemented by a lot of produce from my dad's allotment right. and in a very loving environment. Yeah. Beautiful. And so what was, what was the first time that you heard anything about veganism and sort of what sparked your interest in it? Was it for ethical reasons or was it more for the health and wellness? What led you to the vegan diet? Yes, well, when I was about 13 or 14, I suddenly became aware of animal rights. And I kind of expressed a desire to my mum that I'd like to be a vegetarian. And it was that was kind of unusual, I think, because my mother had been brought up in a butcher's shop. My grandfather was a butcher. And they'd had a couple of vegetarian friends in Germany. But it was in those days, it, it wasn't kind of very widespread. It wasn't really normal to be a vegetarian so my mum wasn't really keen on it but I kind of would have liked to so I, I got involved in animal rights when I was at school I refused to do any dissection for ethical reasons so yes it started off very ethically and then as soon as I left home I stopped eating meat I didn't eat meat again at all and then a year after that I became vegan and so I was a vegetarian for about a year and then went on to the the vegan diet and it was purely for ethical reasons but what happened when I became vegan really astounded me when I switched to vegetarian I never really liked meat I never was you know keen on it unless it was sort of mashed up in a sausage and didn't look like meat so when I gave up meat I didn't really notice any change and I certainly didn't notice any health changes and then when I realized that 
practices, certain practices in the dairy, in the egg industry, I was just no longer comfortable with. And for my own ethics, I decided to, with a friend, both of us, like overnight, we were both vegetarian, but yes, we really need to be vegan for ethics. And the very next day, I was only 20 at the time. So the very next day, I was at university in Canterbury in the UK, and my student digs were at the bottom of the hill, and the campus was at the top of the hill. So every day I had to climb up the hill. And every day as I reached the top, I had a tightness in my chest and I would actually be wheezy. And the very next day after I gave up animal products, I realized I was at the top of the hill and I wasn't wheezing and I had no tightness in my chest. And it was like, oh, that's amazing because I wasn't looking. I thought I was a pretty healthy 20-year-old, no obvious or serious health challenges and it was purely for ethical reasons so I wasn't expecting any difference in my health and certainly not such a a really sort of obvious difference the very next day and it was like oh and I don't think I've been wheezy ever since that's amazing so that for me it was like well I did this for ethical reasons and I am a vegan for ethical reasons but I want more about how what we consume how what we put in our bodies affects how we feel and our health and so from that moment on I really got interested in researching and reading and there wasn't I wasn't online in those days Uh, I think there probably was the beginnings of the internet but I'd go to secondhand bookshops and find anything I could read on different types of vegan diet and I tried uh, Anne Wigmore raw a lot of sprouts wheatgrass type of raw vegan diet I also was very interested in macrobiotics. And although macrobiotics is, is pretty cooked in a UK environment, it's very little raw food, the sort of the principles of it really resonated with me about taking control of your own health. And that was like a real, that was another revelation for me. Because until then, I'd always been sort of under the impression that if you got sick, you went to the doctors and they were responsible for getting you well. But reading this macrobiotic book, The Cancer Prevention Diet by Michio Kuchi, I was like, that was probably one of the most influential books on me that I, you know, that I read, because it was like, wow, we're responsible for our own health. And that really empowers you. And if we're sick or if we're not well, we can change that. We have the power to change that by diet and lifestyle. So the microbiotic diet was kind of influential in that way in my progress towards a raw diet. And I tried a a general whole food, bog standard kind of vegan diet. And then when I was 24, I went to a meeting and I was part of the local animal rights group and we had different speakers. So the speaker at this meeting was a fruitarian and his name was David Shelley, um, who had discovered the fruitarian diet. And he gave a talk and he was really inspiring. He looked great. He was very fit, had really good energy. He cycled everywhere. And after the talk, there was a whole group of us, about five or six. And we were all like, wow, you know, we want some of what he's got. And what he's doing is obviously working very well for him. So we all started off on the path to a fruitarian diet. I was pregnant at the time in the early stages of pregnancy with my eldest son. So I thought, well, I'm not going to go straight onto, even though I'd been gradually refining my diet over the years, I thought I'm not going to go straight onto a fruitarian diet just in case I have a lot of elimination and, and pregnancy is maybe not the time for anything drastic to happen to my body in terms of cleansing. 
So I did a, this transitional diet over about a year, eating lots of fruit. Sometimes I would have whole days or whole weeks of fruit. And then other times I would have not really much cooked food, but maybe a baked potato or a sweet potato in the evenings. And that transitional period was very useful because during that transitional period, I found what worked for me best. And I think that's really important that each person finds the ratios that work for them. And I was ready to let go of cooked food because I found the days that I had cooked food, I felt different. If it was more than one day, maybe if it was just one day, there wasn't such a difference, but two days in a row of just having a baked potato at night. So nothing, you know, hugely processed. My body odor would change. Wow. The taste in my mouth would change. So first thing in the morning when I woke up, I would have a different and, in, you know, in my opinion, it wasn't so nice taste in my mouth. And I was really at that point ready to let go of cooked food. I was fortunate to always have been able to access, even in the UK, really good quality fruit, organic fruit, um, tropical fruits. So it was that was really, really helpful. And I was at a point where these fruits worked better for me. And also I was enjoying them more than the cooked food. And so that transitional period was very, very useful to me. I initially did that transitional period because I was pregnant. But now looking back, I think that was instrumental in helping me stick with the diet because I know how I felt when I didn't have um an all raw day, I, I can still sort of have that reference point for me. And I know some people do great on say 80% raw, 20% cooked. And I think it is an individual thing and you find the balance. But for me, doing that transitional period made me realize, yeah, I feel better on 100% raw. And I was just, I was ready to let go. It wasn't like anyone was forcing me to be 100% raw. I'd come to that point myself. So yeah, that's really how I, how I, found the fruitarian diet and I've stuck with it and it's stuck with me ever since um, because of all the diets that I've tried, all the vegan diets have also, it, it kind of ticks all the boxes for me. Yeah. That's amazing. And when you first saw David Shelley speaking, what was it that just excited you about, you know, and made you so curious? I think it was his energy, which affected the way he looked and everything. He, he just exuded this enthusiasm and passion and a lot of times when you hear people speaking about diet, it's it's not with that passion and excitement. He made it very accessible. He didn't talk about all this, you know, complicated stuff. I, mean, I read some raw food books and the first page is like, so, oh, what does this mean? But I think the truth is often simple. It doesn't mean it is necessarily easy to go onto a fruit diet, but I think this energy and everything was just, you know, coming through in his appearance and he did look very good and he was very physically fit. And so obviously it was a diet that worked for him that he could do a lot of exercise. And he shared in his book about how he used to find a particular hill running up this hill. He called it Agony Hill and it was very challenging and then once he'd been a few months on a fruit diet, he was going up that hill and he suddenly realized that his body wasn't hurting and it was like there was a flow to his energy. And that's something that I noticed as well, that often you see people exercising, running or jogging, and they look in pain and they look like, you know, they think it's a good thing to do, but it's not comfortable. Mm. But for me, that was very true with the fruit diet. 
exercise was like there was a flow to it there wasn't an you know I I still run now and I don't find it difficult I find it you know this lovely flow and it and it's enjoyable which I think all exercise should be I mean that doesn't mean you can't push yourself and sometimes it's a little bit challenging but I don't think there should be an agony towards exercise and Arnold Errett who was a pioneer of this raw food fruitarian movement he had an equation which is v equals p minus o where v is vitality p is power and o are obstructions so when you start removing obstructions from your body so when you start cleansing and rebalancing you have more vitality and certainly i found that and I think as well, when you do exercise, you don't have a recovery time in the same way. Like you don't feel stiff or sore afterwards. I think the fruit diet is very effective at helping recovery from exercise. Having somebody who was actually doing it and looked great and his book just made sense was very instrumental in me, you know, getting onto the, the fruit diet. During that 18 month transition period, how did, how did you feel? So you went from a standard diet to a vegan diet, and then you slowly introduced more raw foods and fruits and experienced raw till four. So what were some of the benefits that you felt during that period and on days where you had some salad or nuts and seeds and other days where you were having more fruits? Yeah, what were the differences between the different stages that you went through to finally get to being fruitarian and the benefits? Well, I think just having more energy, the more fruit and the less processed foods, even things like nuts, which are a lot harder to digest, just having more energy. And I had a, I was pregnant at the time, so it was kind of unusual in the fact that it was my first pregnancy. I had a wonderful pregnancy. I had a very healthy pregnancy. My hormones were in a real balance, and I think a lot of that was being on the fruit diet. And um, I had great health and I worked a, a fairly physical job until I was seven months pregnant. So I had no illness. I had no swelling, no backache. And I loved being pregnant. So I was eating these beautiful fruits, which were giving me energy, I think, but helping my endocrine system to become balanced which is very, very important in pregnancy. So I didn't get morning sickness. I didn't get any edema or anything like that. And it was a very joyous time. And I think I was just enjoying the fruit. We'd formed an organic fruit buying group. So we were getting really good quality fruits from all over the world. Because in the UK, fruit's very seasonal. There's some beautiful fruits in the summer and in the autumn. But then come the winter and the spring, you really have to rely on imported fruit. So it was a joyous period as well. I think enjoying and there were lots of fruits that I'd never had before. I'd never had a mango before growing up in the UK. And I remember having my first mango, going to a local fruit shop and buying a mango. So it was opening up a lot of new experiences to different foods that I hadn't tried before. So, um, yeah, and noticing on those days when I ate cooked food or when I ate, you know, say more dense raw foods, such as nuts and seeds, I didn't feel quite as good as the days, the days when I just have juicy fruit and I would eat as much as I needed. And I found I needed to eat more in those early days, in those early months to maintain my weight. Okay. Whereas now I probably eat half the amount I ate at the beginning. I think I just assimilate things a lot more. I'm more used to the diet. So sometimes I would eat, you know, more dense foods. So yeah, it was um, a very 
a very special time because the, uh, you know, pregnancy is a special time. And then having all these new experiences and sharing it with my friends. I think the social thing was to start out on a new diet and have five or six of your friends also doing that diet. Yeah. And so you can compare notes and you can, I don't know, have that support because other people are eating what you're eating. And at that time, there weren't many other people doing it. And Arnold Errett, who we talked about before, he recommended a transitional diet, as did Essie Honnable. Essie Honnable was a South African lady, mm-hmm. and she wrote a book, I Live on Fruit. Right. And I think she was in her 30s before she went on the fruit diet. She was very, very sick. I don't know exactly what the illness was, but it was something pretty serious. And she was kind of, she could have died, I believe. And then she met her future husband, Cornelius, and he was studying fruitarian diets in South um, Africa at the University of Pretoria. So he put her on a fruit diet without a transition because she was so sick. It was like, you know, you've got to go on a fruit diet, otherwise you might die. Right. But afterwards, she said it was so hard for her to go straight. And especially as I suppose being very, very sick as well, it was very hard for her to go straight onto a fruit diet and she really recommended transitional diets and I think if you want to go straight onto a fruit diet from a conventional diet that that's fine as well and I think it's helped me realize what works for me best mm-hmm. whereas if I'd gone straight onto a fruit diet from a sort of conventional vegan diet I might not have realized that yeah 100% fruit works best for me mm-hmm. better than 80% or 90% and I wouldn't have got those kind of references and and I know now and I can still remember how I felt when I didn't have all fruit compared to when I had all fruit so yeah that was it was a it was a very useful I think and pivotal experience doing the transitional diet yeah it sounds like you learn a lot and incredibly valuable to have a beautiful community of people around you and support network not many people get that opportunity yeah very lucky so how long when you started implementing more fruit how long did it take to see any results or benefits like within your physical state well I felt better in the mornings and this I think is a barometer I think how you feel first thing in the morning when you wake up is a real barometer of your overall health and obviously that will change if you have a particularly rough night or if you're up late but in general, how do you feel first thing in the morning? Eating a cooked vegan diet or even a macrobiotic diet. When I woke up, I'd feel groggy and I'd feel like I needed a shower or I needed some kind of stimulant to get me going in the morning. But on the fruit diet, one thing I really noticed was that in the morning, I was ready to go. I didn't need a kind of period to wake up. I mean, now I usually get up between four or five in the morning. I go to bed early-ish between nine and ten. And, I, you know, I can get out of bed and I can start working or start doing anything as soon as I wake up. When I was a lot younger as well, on a, on a cooked vegan diet, still feeling like hungover, even though I wasn't drinking alcohol. I'd given up alcohol, you know, before, before I was um, on a fruit diet. But as a vegan, just feeling hungover and without alcohol, just kind of groggy. And, and take it and that time to, to sort of wake up and to feel like, oh, I can go and I can, and mentally sharp as well. I think, um, you know, often when I was working at my last job and it was online and I would usually get up at four and do an hour or two's work and then maybe go for a run. So I'd get up, get my computer set up and I'd be ready to, you know, switch on. 
as soon as I woke up. And I and I really did notice that that change. Pregnancy changes your body. How much was the pregnancy and how much was the fruit diet? I certainly felt very well and really energetic during my pregnancy. And I exercised and I, you know, kept going. And I only put on 10 kilos as well. Um, and then lost that, you know, fairly soon after I'd given birth. People didn't really know that I was pregnant and with my second pregnancy as well I worked till I was eight months pregnant and I was doing massage and I wore baggy sort of trousers and I didn't tell anybody at work that I was pregnant until I left at eight months pregnant so when your endocrine system is working effectively and I think that's one of the big challenges to everyone in our society today when we have so many chemicals we have so much processed food we have artificial hormones in food that our endocrine system which is an amazing amazing system that makes us feel well and um affects our metabolism that it's compromised and people get premenstrual syndrome women do which really affects them so for a few days their personality everything really changes just from an endocrine system being out of balance or a hormone being out of balance. And I think when you're pregnant and your endocrine system is in balance, it's, it's a special time. It's a wonderful time. And it's a shame that a lot of people have difficult pregnancies and they have backache and they have preeclampsia and they have a lot of morning sickness. And I think I'm not saying all of that, but I think a lot can be helped by getting your endocrine system back in balance, back in alignment by having a natural diet and lifestyle. And it can be challenging because we have so many pollutants in our societies, in our worlds that we can't necessarily change like EMFs and pollution from vehicles, dirty electricity. I mean, we can do things to reduce them, but the things that we can really control are exercise, diet, breathing, get fresh air, sunlight, all those things that can help sort of mitigate the effects of pollution that we can't have so much control over and we can help regulate our endocrine systems. And one thing I noticed when I was working as a massage therapist was that so many women are on thyroxine. So many people have issues with their thyroid. Again, that's the, the thyroid is the master gland of the endocrine system. And it affects your metabolic rate. And so some people can, you know, have an overactive thyroid and they get very, very thin and um, they they have issues with putting weight on. And some people can have an underactive thyroid and then they put weight on very easily and have issues with maintaining an optimal weight. Our body's amazing. The design of our body, I believe, is perfect. And if we give our body what it needs, there's no reason why our endocrine system should not be working unless we've had physical injury to our thyroid gland. And I know iodine, if you have too much iodine, iodine can burn your thyroid gland. So you have to be very, very careful with supplementing iodine and, um, you know, it can permanently damage. So some people might have permanently damaged thyroid glands. They might've had their thyroid gland removed and they may need to be on medication. But I think the vast majority of people could reduce their medication or not need their medication if they they themselves work with their body to get their endocrine system functioning you know properly again i don't think it's 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 impossible and i think just giving people a medication to say you'll be on this for life is addressing what's going on with our endocrine systems so i want to talk to you a little bit about mindset so when i mean everybody has their own unique set of values 
a lot of people have this inbuilt little voice in their head that talks to themselves. So what did you have to change about the message that you gave to yourself to be able to make the different changes necessary to be successful in the path? And where did discipline and willpower come into that? Because we're all human at the end of the day. And people, a lot of people can find it very difficult to stick to just a raw mm. vegan diet, let alone the extraordinary step of going to a fruitarian diet. So how did mm. you manage all of that mindset? And how did you readjust your values to create new values that would actually work for you long term? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Well, going back to being on a regular diet, going to be vegetarian wasn't hard because I didn't like meat and I never missed it. Going to veganism from vegetarianism, I really like cheese. I really like chocolate. And in those days, you know, that's like 36 years ago or whatever, there was no decent vegan chocolate or cheese. The chocolate was chalky and the cheese tasted like perfumed rubber. It was just bouncy and just, oh. So <laughs> it wasn't like I, I was going to have vegan cheese or vegan chocolate. And that was a like putting my sort of desires against what I knew ethically mm-hmm. that I should be in alignment with. And ethically, I knew I'd been to a lairage which was where baby calves are taken when they're taken away from their mothers. And it was heartbreaking. The baby calves were crying for their mothers who they should have been with. And so for me, that was like, it was really emotional. And even though I was like, I like chocolate, I like cheese, it was like, well, do you like them enough to contribute to baby calves being taken away from their mothers when they should be with their mothers and you know most I'm not saying all but most commercial dairy farms take the babies away from their mothers very shortly after birth so it was it wasn't hard in a way and and I was like I'm gonna miss cheese I'm gonna miss chocolate but having that visual and having those sounds in my head of the baby calves crying for their mothers, you know, and it still still makes me feel emotional, was like, I don't want to contribute towards that. And so my sort of like desires for taste, which is what it really is. So it was, that was kind of always my guiding thing. And I knew I'd always be vegan. And I remember it was only a couple of days after I'd become vegan and I'd bought some trail mix uh, from a whole food shop and it had carob little buttons in. And I ate one of the carob buttons and I, it tasted really strong and not nice. And this was only, I think, two days after I'd given up dairy products. And so I rang the shop up and I said, is there any kind of dairy products in your carob buttons? And they said, oh, yes, there's milk powder. And I thought, wow, I picked up on that. Only a couple of days, it tasted strong and unpleasant to me. Right. So I think I think physical and mental, my your mindset is affected by the physical and the emotional. So emotionally, I was very committed to a vegan diet. And also um, physically, I was no longer attracted to dairy products and they made me feel kind of icky. Mm. Then a couple of years into the fruitarian diet, I got a craving for eggs, scrambled eggs. And I've never particularly been an egg kind of person. It was so strong. And if I hadn't had that ethical thing that I, I was vegan, I think I would have just gone out and had a plate of scrambled eggs. So I just thought, I don't know what's going on here. This is interesting. Is it something in eggs that I need that I'm not getting in my diet? I'll see how it goes. And it lasted for about a day and a half and it went and it never, never came back again. It could have been I was eliminating something to do with eggs. I don't know. But it was so strong, this craving. And that's, I think, probably the strongest craving I had 
after I was, you know, going onto a fruit diet, but the ethics again, the ethics stopped me. And I do really do think if I hadn't had the ethics, I could have well had this, but it, it never came back. And so I tend to think it wasn't something if, if I was missing something in the diet that was in eggs and wasn't in the fruits I was eating, it would have come back and I would have got it. But it was only that day and a half, a couple of years into the diet and it was very, very strong. Do you think it's been an emotional memory sort of in your, you know, in your system, we store these emotions and memories. Mm. And I mean, it could have just been from your childhood, something that was a comfort. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I really don't know, but it was such a physically strong desire to eat eggs. And I wasn't like I'd ever had it before. I haven't ever had it after, but that was an interesting experience. And then I think when I was also on the fruit diet, so from being on the fruit diet, I was pregnant and then I had a child. And from what I'd researched and read, I really wanted my child to be weaned onto a fruit diet. Obviously, babies are milkarians and they need milk for the first few years at least. And so when you've got a child you that helped me i think stick to the diet so there were times when i got cravings in the early years for things but i think with having a child and wanting that child to be on a fruitarian diet plus milk for the first you know three and a half four years i couldn't you know i couldn't be a hypocrite i couldn't think well i want my child to eat this diet but i'm not actually going to do it myself so i think having that child and realizing that i thought i believed this was the best diet to bring my child up on with with breast milk as well that then that helped me as well stay with it and i i, I you know i i think that was an important factor and then you get to the stage where fruit is your food and you don't see other foods as your food it's very for me it's almost it's quite like putting things into boxes in a way but quite there's those boundaries, quite strong boundaries. Like, and I cook for my family. I used to cook for my father when he was alive, cook for my children when they went to a vegan diet from a fruitarian diet when they were both 14, cook for my husband. And I like cooking in the way that it can be creative. And I only cook vegan food. And it, if I wasn't cooking vegan food for my father, he would eat really processed standard food. And also, I think, you know, my kids would have eaten processed vegan food. My husband would eat more processed vegan food. So it's like if I can cook a meal that's organic, whole food, vegan, and help the health of the people I love. But also, some people do find that hard. And I think you have to, if you find it hard cooking vegan food for your family because you want to be raw vegan, but then it's important. Your own needs are very important. And maybe you don't cook for them for a while. Somebody else in the family does the cooking because I think especially as women, we're always taught to put everybody else's needs as important. Very true. But we need our own needs are also important. Mm-hmm. I enjoy cooking because it feeds, it nourishes my family and family members that aren't fruitarian. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't have an issue with it because I don't see my food. And it's kind of because I don't taste food when I'm cooking. I have to go back to reference points of when I cooked vegan food. and kind of know what goes with what. Now smell it and think, how's that smelling? But foods I never really cooked with, like quinoa Mm -hmm. and um, chilies, 
I find it very difficult to cook with them because I've got no reference point. I can't think, well, what does quinoa taste like and what does it go with? But things that I use, you know, like rice or potatoes or other vegetables, I kind of know what they go with. So, and also I think some of the time you can make, you know, if you know, like in a raw, I've had some, I don't very often eat gourmet food, but I've had a couple of gourmet meals and I had one which was raw mushroom and sage. And I thought, wow, sage and mushroom go well together. So then I can incorporate that when I do a, a cook meal. So, yeah, so it kind of works out that, and um, my husband likes my food anyway. So <laughs> even though I don't taste it, I'm thinking, oh, is this all right? You know, but, it's yeah. obviously your intuition has certainly become a lot clearer and you're more in tune with the foods and the, and the fruits and the vegetables. And I think that all plays a part as well. Mm -hmm. yes I think it does I think it does and um you know you kind of and sometimes it's like less is more you don't need to put a whole load of stuff in when you cook you can do good flavors when the ingredients are good and I always try and get as much organic for my family as possible because I really do believe that having fewer chemicals in our foods very very important and organic produce is much higher in nutrients so yeah that's that's important yeah, how do you go getting a selection, a wide variety of organic food where you're located now compared to when you were in England? I, I, in England, I, I was fortunate because I lived in Leicester, which has a great diversity of ethnic um, races. And so there was West Indian fruit available. There was Indian fruit available. There was Pakistani fruit available. So the mangoes that would come from Pakistan and India were just oh, so, so good. And you get to know, I think when you rely on fruit as a food, you get this kind of like you it's on your radar and you will find where it is. Um, you know, I went into a Bangladeshi shop and got a massive big jackfruit. It was like, wow. And it was funny because years and years later, so a few years ago, when I was visiting the UK to see my father and my younger son was with me, I said, oh, I went to this Bangladeshi shop years and years ago and got a jackfruit. And we went in and they still had jackfruit. Oh, so, you, you know, you you get to know the markets, the ethnic stores. We also had the buying group and you get to know which supermarkets are the best for fruit. And so I did well. It was more challenging in the winter because in the summer you get all the European fruits you get beautiful fruit from france from italy from spain so as well as the british produce so the summer was very very easy to me winter could be more challenging because you would get melons and mangoes coming from south and central america and they were never such good quality they never could right. stand up to the indian mangoes or the european melons so it was a bit more challenging so, but what the big change, I think, with moving to Australia is local produce, mm -hmm. that you can access locally grown produce, you can grow stuff yourself. Mm -hmm. I mean, I did have an allotment in England for a time and I did grow fruit on that, but it's very, very seasonal. The winter and the spring, is there's, there's, there's no fruit really that you can harvest. Yeah. So... Being able to eat local fruit, and most of my diet's local fruit, being able to grow it. And the place we're at the moment, we're working towards self-sufficiency. And when we have, like at the moment, mango season's just starting. I'm just, okay, this, is, this isn't ripe. So I've picked some of the mangoes off because the possums and the fruit bats like them. And I'm happy to share, <laughs> but I do pick a few hard 
because otherwise a lot just go on the floor and the possums like will take one bite out of a mango like this which is not ripe and then it will drop to the floor and just won't be edible but that one's probably almost Kensington pride mangoes or yes they're a bowen they're a bowen so we've got two trees so that's nice so I had like a meal today um me and my husband shared some mango in a meal and that was delicious and it's nice to get stuff that's grown in your place Um, and then when we have ripe bananas we we need to put more trees in to be self-sufficient and more plants but when we have bananas I've had a few days when I've just eaten off the land because I've had other things tamarillos ripe and um, Brazilian cherries and bananas and I've had enough which is and it's a lovely feeling actually to think well I've eaten just off the land today just off our land But a lot of the time at the moment we need to supplement because we haven't got as many established fruit trees. And I would like to get more citrus in because I do really like oranges and I would like to get some avocado trees in. We're growing some from seeds, but they can take a long time to fruit. So in the meantime, get some grafted avocado trees, different varieties so we can get avocados all year round and put more banana suckers in because bananas, if they produce a big bunch, and my husband works away a lot. So if it's just me, I, the last bunch that we had from the garden, I ate them all. You know, I didn't need to freeze any. But if it's too much, mm. we can always freeze them. Amazing. That helps the times when there isn't so much fruit available. So, yeah, um, it's I, I love living here. It's a very good climate. We're in the Atherton Tablelands, so we're not true tropical. We're more subtropical. Mm-hmm where we are we'll we can get figs grow very well and blood oranges and the fruits that need a bit of a colder winter so we get the tropical summers here but the winter can be cooler which i being from the uk i'm kind of used to so i kind of like that but not, yes not as cold as the uk for sure oh no no and i look because i because like some of my family is still in the uk and i have a weather app and I see what the temperature is, and I think, oh, it's minus two. I think, oh, I don't miss that. And I think that was when I first came to Australia, and I was on the Sunshine Coast for um, about 20 years before we moved here. We've been here just under a year. And I couldn't believe the weather every day, because in the winter it's it's sunny, in the summer it's sunny, and it was like, I can get my washing dry. I can do three <laughs> lots of washing Whereas in England, I'd had like I'd lived in an old terraced house, and the 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 sun's very low most of the year, so I couldn't get washing dry from September to June. Only from June to September could I put washing on the line, and it would get dry. And here it's like oh, it's dry in two hours, and and I I just for many years I couldn't I couldn't quite believe the the climate. Now I'm kind of used to it. I mean I loved being on a fruit diet in the UK, and I found really good fruit and. I was happy, but winter, and we lived in a cold house without any central heating, winter could be challenging. Mm. How I dealt with it was exercise more and wear layers of clothing. And I would, I I get very hot when I run. So I I don't have any issues running. I prefer running in the cold weather because if I run when it's hot, I get overheating. And so I would go running in the UK and it would be like zero. It would be, you know, minus temperatures. And I would just have a little vest on because I knew if I take a coat, if I take anything, once I've been running five minutes, I'll be hot and then it'll be too much and I'll have to, you know, carry it. And so I would run and I would do functional exercise. So I would run to the supermarket to buy my fruit and then I would either walk back or get the bus. And 
I'd be so warm. I'd be in a vest and shorts. <laughs> and people would still think, who's that lunatic? You know, it's like minus two. And she's got a vest and shorts on. So I found, you know, running especially for me, but exercise would really help when it was cold. And so yeah. did you notice when you were on a cooked vegan diet, did you notice a huge increase in your energy levels and your performance and ability to exercise shifting from the vegan to raw vegan? And then again, did you see a change going into being fruitarian? Yes, I did. I because I used to exercise, and I can very much relate to David Shelley's experience with Agony Hill. When I used to exercise, I remember going out jogging with my friends, and I, it'd always be like difficult. And this was as a teenager, so I was young, but it would feel difficult, and it would I would feel groggy, you know, early morning running. And now, like I'm much older. And I go early morning running and I don't feel groggy. I feel good and alive. And so there was a big, big difference going into going into veganism was that more the sort of like the not having the mucus. But yeah, being on fruit is really where I feel the flow and I can identify with what David Shelley said and also what Arnold Eric said about when you remove the obstructions, you have more vitality. And it's like recovery time and things and also i think if i hadn't found the fruit and i would be having a lot of joint issues because um arthritis is big in my family so genetically i'm susceptible to getting arthritis and i even noticed when i was vegan in the winters in the uk i would feel my joints my joints on my hand would start to feel sore and this would be you know i'd be in like my 20s since going on a fruitarian diet, I had a, a bit of issue with my hands just because of typing a lot in my last job, like sometimes typing for 14 hours a day, which oh, wow. I realized wasn't good. But in general, I can, and I, re I recovered from that. But running, um, and I want to be able to run, I love running, I communicate with um, nature, with everything, with God, with when I run, especially early in the morning, and it's a really precious time for me. And if I can't run anymore, then I'll walk. But I love running in the mornings, early mornings when there's not much traffic, when the kangaroos are out and the wallabies and the, um, you know, the guinea fowl, but not many cars, not many people. And I really want to be able to do that for as long as I can. And I think the fruitarian diet will enable me to be able to carry on running and hopefully not get joint issues in my knees or my hips that I can no longer run. And if I can no longer run, I'll, I'll do different exercise. I want to do my best to look after my body so I can run as long as possible. Yeah. So, yeah, I've definitely noticed that, you know, in early 20s, having when I would flex my fingers and I would feel a swelling, I'd feel a swelling and an itchiness in my knuckles. And both my mother and father had arthritis mm -hmm. and my grandparents. So it's definitely a genetic susceptibility. If we look after our bodies, we can kind of stave them off and we can prevent them from happening. Do you find, did you find that it was any particular foods that triggered that inflammation? So for me, I also get arthritis in my, as a photographer, in my mm. uh, knuckles and my hands and my elbow, particularly I'm very high. Mm. If the minute yeah. I have a little bit of bread or I have baked potatoes or even roasted sweet potatoes, I find the next day my knuckles and joints are all hurting. So do mm. you have, did you ever have any, 
any particular foods that triggered that for you? Yes, wheat and bread would be particularly, yes. Yeah. And, I, and even though I didn't notice digestively, if it's hurting, you, I mean, like the body's holistic. So if it's hurting my joints, it's going to be hurting my digestive system. I just am not aware of it yet, but it's doing something in there. But yes, it was with bread I came to that thing that you know realization that they're not good but on the macrobiotic diet which is very cooked and in the UK guess if you're living in the tropics and very sort of anti-fruit for a temperate region and I remember once I, I really got into the macrobiotics and I appreciate it because I gave up a lot of processed foods but on the macrobiotic diet I didn't really notice arthritis and I think the macrobiotic diet I think it was much higher than optimal in sodium but I think I used everything organic I didn't have wheat uh, if I had wheat it would be whole wheat groats soaked organic but mostly it was um, whole oat groats which I made a porridge from actually the whole groat which most people don't see because you get it when it's squashed as a as a porridge oat and rice organic medium grain brown rice and they didn't seem to have that same issue but but bread definitely wheat would itch it would itch and it would get a bit red and I haven't had that since I went on a fruitarian diet and I'm you know I think joint health is something that we do have to be aware of as we get older and you know we say you can get away with things well nobody ever really gets away with anything a lot of people you know, people my age will say, yes, it's it's just getting older. You know, it's our age. And I'm thinking, well, it shouldn't be our age. You can be healthy and vibrant at any age. And another thing that, you know, my cycles were a lot better on a fruit diet. And especially if I was having on a mono diet, they were just really light. And I'd always have very, very painful periods before going raw. Even on a vegan diet, I'd still have painful periods. I'd know when my period was going to stop because the day before I'd get really bad cramps. And then when I was through town, it was like, well, I think this is when my period is due, but I've got no indication. My body's not cramping. Um, and then I've just like recently gone through menopause. And I was kind of thinking, well, you hear these things, you'll have it for five years, you'll have all these symptoms. You'll have hot flushes, you'll have mood swings, you'll have brain fog. And the only symptom I had was that my period stopped. I didn't bleed anymore. And I felt exactly the same. And I've talked to other women who've been long-term raw, and they've had that as well. And I was thinking, well, this is great. I mean, I'm not saying that it was, it might be a genetic thing as well. I'm not saying, it, I can't say that it's 100% down to my diet, but I really do believe that that's helped and I think that's something that could help women so much because so many women Absolutely. for years and years have issues with menopause and it's like a dreaded word I mean it's a passage it's a passage from going from a fertile part of your life to a part of your life where you're no longer fertile and but all these symptoms that are associated with menopause I don't think necessarily you need to go through them if your diet and lifestyle and it's not just about diet it's you know exercise fresh air sunshine your mindset there's your emotional state there's 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 lots of things it's not just i don't believe it's not diet but i do know you know other long-term raw food females who that's happened so yeah I was like really surprised because of my, you know, my period stopped and I was thinking, but I'm not having any symptoms of menopause. Is this menopause? I'm not having any symptoms. And then like, yeah. A lot of women would love to hear that, that particularly mm. 
you know, to give yes. them encouragement and hope that it's not going to be this disaster period that they're dreading. Yes. You know, it's something yeah. that they can just sail into and hopefully it's, you know, it's a lot smoother than what most people say. Yeah, and I think as well, you know, there's people have hormone replacement therapy and there's sort of bio-identical hormone replacement therapy. There can be issues with both of those because they are synthetic hormones. And I think when we add any synthetic hormones, and I don't think menopause is a bad thing. It's a stage. I think every stage of a woman's life should be embraced. But if it's a stage where we're having pain and discomfort and emotional problems, and that's similar to you know, when we're still having our female cycle or when we're pregnant, some women have a lot of issues during pregnancy because their endocrine system isn't working optimally. Um, or with their cycles, they have heavy periods, a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort, mood swings before their period and the first few days of their period. And I think this whole issue of endocrine system not working as it should and that it can be changed without the need for artificial hormones. And there are alternative methods. And I really believe our body is this amazing design. And why would our body be designed with these flaws? Mm. And I think, yes, we have genetic limitations. So what our parents have done, what we've done previously before we sort of were more aware about diet and lifestyle, what our grandparents and our great-grandparents have done, all does affect us and limits us genetically so somebody might eat a less than optimal diet and never have arthritis but then they might have other health challenges so we have genetic weaknesses but i really believe that whatever our genetic weakness is we can deal with that in the best possible way when we have a diet and lifestyle that is in harmony with with how we're supposed to live and is in harmony with nature and um, i think you know, people experience it and people that do change and are having issues with their endocrine system, they change to a different type of diet and they have amazing changes. And I, I just think it is it is sad that a lot of women suffer and aren't given any sort of alternative advice by the allopathic medical system. They're just given drugs and those drugs have side effects. And that's the issue. Maybe those, maybe HRT drugs will help and they'll stop hair loss or they'll stop, um, you know, mood swings, or they'll stop brain fog. But what is the sort of the, the what are the cons? What side effects they can increase risks of certain types of cancer? So whereas a natural diet and lifestyle doesn't have those cons, it doesn't have, because it's a holistic thing, and it's something that we we kind of have to work out. We don't just take a pill. We work at doing our exercise, our meditation, uh you know, diet, it's not, it's a whole package. And I think society has been led to believe that things can be cured by pills. We can carry on eating the foods that we want to eat or drinking or taking drugs and it'll be okay because we'll go to the doctor for a pill and he'll fix it. And I think that's a disservice to us because it, it disempowers us. If we take responsibility for our health, we have the chance to change things and we really have a chance to improve our health. And, you know, although I no longer practice the macrobiotic diet, the lessons I learned from that about taking responsibility for our own health and our body's innate intelligence and our body's innate ability to heal if we give the, our bodies what, what it needs is, is very empowering. And I think 
a lot of the allopathic medicine system takes that away. And I do think the allopathic medicine system has its place, you know, if people break bones, if they need certain types of surgery in emergencies. And I think there's there's many advances that are wonderful and there's many treatments that help a lot of people. But I think where it falls short is prescribing pills rather than looking at the root cause of why people are suffering and why their bodies aren't, you know, doing what they think they should be doing. If we get a rash, that's our body trying to deal with something. If we get a runny nose, if we get a so-called cold, again, it's our body reacting. And if we suppress all those symptoms, we're not allowing our body to heal itself. And I do believe that the body is amazing and it will always try and heal. So I think there's definitely genetic weaknesses, but I think we can do our best to, to sort of overcome that through diet and lifestyle. I agree. And do you do you supplement at all? Um, how do you approach your daily diet now in terms of fruit? How do you know what to eat on a daily basis so that your body gets an entire gamut of nutrients and minerals? Um, I don't supplement at the moment. When I have blood tests, my B12 is always low, but never like out of range but it's on the low side of normal. I've known people that have got B12 deficiency. You know, you can get a numb or tingling tongue. You can get your extremities, your fingers and your toes. It's a, it's a nervous and neural um, issue. Um, and I would supplement. I supplemented when I was pregnant and in the early months of breastfeeding, I supplemented B12 because I was responsible for other beings, you know, and I didn't want them to become B12 deficient. So I did supplement then. I never noticed any difference. I think if you're B12 deficient and you supplement, you will notice. And people I know that have had B12 symptoms, deficiency symptoms, as soon as they've supplemented, it stopped. All those symptoms have stopped and you can be pretty sure that you were B12 deficient. But it, again, it's a genetic thing. My father and my grandmother um, on my father's side were both omnivorous eaters and they both had pernicious anemia as they got older and needed B12 injections. So I'm aware there's a genetic issue as well. Um, so far, I haven't had any issues, but I, I'm mindful. I'm like mindful of how I feel. So if I needed to supplement B12, I would. I think the other thing to be mindful of is vitamin D. I think vitamin D is very, very important. It's almost like a steroid rather than your B vitamins or your vitamin C. Its molecular structure is very similar to cholesterol and it acts like a steroid in the body. It also has a, a really important effect on immunity and on cancer prevention. And in many countries, they've gone the, too far. Yes, people want to be protected from melanoma and from skin damage by too much sun or too strong sun. And in Australia, we have to be aware of the UV index, which can be really, really high in the summer. But going too far the other way, even like the the British Cancer Council now are saying, yes, people should get outside in the sun without sunscreen for 10, 15 minutes a day. So they've gone back because what's happening is a really high percentage of people in the UK are vitamin D deficient. And being deficient in vitamin D can make you more susceptible to certain kinds of cancer. I think like bowel cancer and breast cancer, sunlight is believed to have a protective effect because of the vitamin D, but there's, then there's lots of other things in sunlight as well that affect us and affect our melatonin and our hormones. So it's, I don't think you can just isolate saying, oh, well, it produces vitamin D. I think sunlight, and even if it's a cloudy day, you're still going to get 
you can get 80% of UV rays coming through depending on the cloud cover. So you can still get benefits from the sun, even when it's cloudy. Just being outside in the air, I think, is very, very important. Um, so I don't supplement, but I would think that anybody on a raw vegan diet needs to look at their B12. They need to look at their vitamin D and get them tested. And if they're low, consider supplementing with the vitamin um, B12. With vitamin D, if you don't want to supplement, you can get a vitamin D lamp. There's a company called Spurty that make a particular vitamin D lamp that doesn't create a tan. It doesn't have the tanning UV, it just has the UV that creates vitamin D. And they do a tanning lamp as well, but they do a specific one that people can sit in front of for five minutes every other day and they will produce adequate vitamin D. So I think the strategies you can use, I think... Um, other supplements you have to be more careful of because it's like iodine. Iodine is something that you have to be really, really careful with. And if you think you're low on iodine, I would consult somebody that's really expert in the field. And inorganic iodine can burn your thyroid. If you take too much iodine, you can permanently destroy your thyroid gland. Mm. So I think that is something very, very careful. Any iodine supplements, try and get it from seaweed or from a natural source. Um, rather than inorganic supplements, which can be toxic. And also they can show in the irises, iridology, if you take inorganic iodine and even painting it on the skin, which a lot of people do and they think it's a natural healing thing, it can affect your liver, it can damage your liver, and it will show up as rust spots, especially in a blue or a green or a lighter colored iris. So it's it can be, I, I think iodine is something that, you have to be careful with yes we don't want to be deficient in iodine but it's not like b12 if we take an extra pill or if we take too much it's not really going to do us any damage but if we take too much iodine we could potentially destroy our thyroid gland and also cause liver damage as well so it's something to be very very cautious with yeah. so i think everything else can potentially be got from your food but the bottom line is the quality of the soil, always the quality of the soil and is something picked ripe enough? Because often the certain nutrients in fruit that only develop on the last few days of ripening. And this is very challenging with commercial farming. And it's a reason why it's really important to try and grow our own or have an allotment or, you know, go to a community farm or forage fruits and try and get fruits that you can pick ripe and there's also like on the other side there's toxins so like in tomatoes for example they have um silicates in but if a tomato is left to fully ripen on the vine they disappear the last couple of days when it's perfectly ripe they disappear but if you buy a tomato and tomatoes are a climacteric fruit so they will ripen after picking so if you buy a tomato and it's picked early and it ripens, it still has the silicates in. But if it's fully vine ripened, they don't. So there's all these things that are, you know, important in terms of nutrients. Fruits picked ripe as possible and the quality of the soil. And this is what I look for with my food. It's not so much the variety. It's not so much the type of fruit, but it's the quality. And try and get as good quality as I can and grow my own. And an important thing, because I'll... I've heard quite a few people say, oh, it's, there's not much difference between organic and non-organic fruits. I think it's more to do with the spray. So you can get something that's not certified organic, mm -hmm. but it's not been sprayed. 
Because one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that when you start spraying the ground with chemicals or trees with chemicals, it kills the fungi in the soil, or it can do. Especially fungicides, but also herbicides can kill fungi, as can the tilling of the soil. Now, the fungi have this amazing relationship with trees. So trees often can't break down calcium in soil if it's inorganic. So you could put a load of, of lime, a load of calcium carbonate in your garden. If you haven't got fungi in there, it will not be absorbed by your fruit trees and the fruit that you're eating will be low in calcium. And it's great if you see little mushrooms or toadstools and you have to be careful, don't eat them unless you know what they are. But if you see them coming up in your garden, that's a really good sign because it means you've got the the, the You've got the spores in there. You've got the mycelium in your soil and you've got, they need a bit of fiber. They need a bit of mulch or something like that as well to grow. So you've got a good sort of um, structure of soil and you've also not killed them off by chemicals. So when the mycelium or when the fungi are in the soil, they have this relationship and they break down bonds in inorganic bonds in calcium. So and the fungi have long roots. It's not just the, the fruiting body is what we see coming up, but under the ground, they have this massive network and they're one of the biggest, like the biggest things on the planet. Some of them can go for miles, the root system. So they they're in the roots of the near the roots of the tree. So they break down bonds. And then the calcium becomes accessible. So the tree will absorb the calcium and then the fruits will be rich in calcium on that tree. So that is very important. And it's not a one way street. So in return, now, fungi don't have leaves. They can't photosynthesize. And when plants photosynthesize in their leaves, they create, create carbohydrates from carbon dioxide and water and sunshine. So the plants create these carbohydrates and they share them with the fungi. So the fungi that can't photosynthesize because they don't have leaves get food from the trees and in return they break down these inorganic calcium bonds. So we see nature is so holistic and has all these wonderful symbiotic relationships. And this is something that I think is really important because I talk to a lot of people that are on a raw food diet and they say it's not important to eat organic, you know, and I'm thinking, well, it's very important to me to eat organic or non-sprayed or local or foraged fruits because they're going to be higher in calcium and we really need to get calcium. And there's also other minerals that the, the fungi allow the plants and the trees to absorb. It's not just calcium but calcium is a big one we need calcium for healthy bones healthy teeth um and we don't get it in dairy products we don't get it from our diet we need you know in the same way so we need to get it from good quality fruits so what i try and choose is the best quality produce possible and you kind of get you kind of get like a sixth sense i think and there's something that you just learn over time but it's instinctive as well and smell smells a great thing People say, well, how do you know when a jackfruit's ripe? Well, when you smell it, when it smells so good that you have to tear into it. Yeah. And been growing some really good pineapples in the garden and you can smell them. The ants run up and down them when they're ripe. And it's one day, really, one day when they go to be perfectly ripe and you don't want them to go over. And the ants run up and down and the smell and you smell. And a pineapple should smell just the most delicious pineapple that you just want to eat it. If it smells vinegary or fermented, it's too over. If it doesn't smell, it's not ripe enough. 
and fortunately I don't really eat pineapples unless I'm where they grow you know I'm living where they grow because they're usually picked underripe and they're non-climacteric so they don't ripen after picking they might appear to get sweeter because the acid content can get lower but they don't actually have any more sugar in them and they don't have the flavor compounds that develop when a fruit is fully left to ripen and people will say well why does fruit not taste of anything and peaches for example a peach again is a climacteric fruit it will ripen after it's been picked but the flavor compounds will only develop properly when it's left to tree ripen so when somebody picks a peach off a tree says oh my goodness this tastes like peaches used to taste when i was a kid and this is amazing it's because you can get pretty good store-bought peaches but they never have that full flavor profile because they've been picked early which they have to do because otherwise they'd rot in transit so, you know, I think it's really important to try and grow some of our own fruit and also develop those senses so that when you go to the market or the store, you can pick good quality fruit. So for me, that's the bottom line. It's not the variety, but for the most part, I will eat seasonally the best quality food I can find. And also I'm growing my own and I'm looking to grow more of my own fruit. At the same time, though, I think it can be important to eat fruit, not just from where you live. Like we've got three acres here. And the reason for that is soil is different and different soils have different elements in. So there might be a lack of selenium in your soil or there might be a lack of copper. So I do think and when I'm doing a mono diet, I'll make sure I don't just get oranges from one grower. I'll get oranges from three, four, five different growers in different areas because I think that is important as well to not just eat fruit from one area. Yes, it's great to have as much of your own homegrown produce as possible, but I think to supplement that with produce from other areas helps to ensure that you are getting all your micronutrient needs met. And do you have much in terms of greens in your diet and how important do you think they are? Do you think that we need them? I know this is a fairly common question. How do you approach that? I think if you crave greens, if you desire greens, then it's important that you eat them. I think it's also important to be aware that greens have toxins in. Mm -hmm. Fruit, we talked about symbiotic relationships earlier. Now, humans and fruit have this wonderful symbiotic relationship. So trees can't move. Plants can't move. So they need to work out strategies to get their seeds to another area because if the seeds fall under the tree and grow they'll be competing with the parent tree for nutrients for light for space and one method of seed dispersal is by animals by animals eating fruit and dispersing the seeds so it's like if you you know if you you pick a mango off a tree and you eat it you're walking away eating it and then you chuck the seed away you're not going to swallow that seed so you disperse it that way that smells good um and another way is that you eat a fruit like a passion fruit or tomato or a kiwi and the seeds go through you you walk off somewhere and you defecate and you plant the seeds and in return you get the fruit and the fruit is you know gives you nutrients gives you energy um and there's this again and that whole of nature has these symbiotic relationships but greens the plant doesn't want you to eat its leaves. If you eat all the leaves from a plant, it won't be able to photosynthesize and it could die. I mean, some trees, you can remove all their leaves and they'll come back, but some plants won't. And so it puts toxins, tannins and alkaloids in the leaves. 
And that's often why baby leaves are much better to eat because the baby leaves have less of these alkaloids, less of these tannins in. And people also say, rotate your greens. So if you really got a, a taste for spinach, you're eating a lot of spinach, be aware that there's, you know, oxalates in spinach. And so maybe have spinach for a while and then have some green that has lower oxalate levels in it, rotate them. Um, but I do think if you crave greens, there can be a really good source of minerals. But again, it comes down to quality. So if you were bought a pack of spinach, for example, that had been in cold storage for a while, it had been in the store for a couple of days, you put it in the fridge for another day and then you eat it, compared to picking a warm mamesa poti straight off a tree, it's grown in good soil, it's fully mature, and you sit and you eat that, which has got the most minerals? The hydroponically grown spinach that's been, you know, five or six days in storage and then a couple of days before you eat it or the mamesa poti. So I think you can't always say greens have got more minerals in than fruit. A lot of the time they can have, but again, it's always about the quality. The bottom line is always about the quality. So I think greens can be a useful addition to the diet. I don't I've never crave them because when I got into this diet through meeting David Shelley, through reading the works of Arnold Errett, it was like, you don't have to eat greens. Mm. Eat tender leaves if you require them, if you desire them, but it wasn't like you have to eat greens, otherwise you'll die. So it was very much, and I never really was attracted to them. And I used to buy them thinking, well, maybe my kids need greens. And even people would bring us celery. And we knew one guy and he grew this most amazing, like organic celery. And it'd be a massive big bunch. And he'd bring it and like my kids would have a little bit and then, nobody'd have any more and I'd end up putting it in the compost and I sometimes buy greens and they'd always end up going in the compost so my children as well weren't attracted to greens so I think it's possible if you're getting good quality fruit if you can't access good quality fruit or if you crave because even if you're getting great quality fruit and you desire greens then I think there's probably something in them that you need but I think if you can access good quality fruit and you don't desire greens I think you don't necessarily need them. So I'm not saying, you know, I'd never eat greens. I listen to my body. Most of the time it doesn't crave greens. If I were to crave greens, I would eat greens. But I am aware that they have certain toxins in that most fruit doesn't. Fruit, if it's edible for humans, and not all fruit is, and if it's perfectly ripe, it tends to have very few toxins in it. There are, there are exceptions. There are fruits that are high in oxalates that we do need to be mindful of. In general, there's also fruits that if they're underripe will harm us. Chocolate sapotis, astringent persimmons, mm -hmm. if you eat them underripe, they're very high in tannins and they're toxic. Mm -hmm. Aki actually kills people. So aki, which is the national fruit of Jamaica, in a three-month period, it killed 23 people. What and that's aki? their national fruit. What, what is aki that? is... a it's a beautiful fruit. It's a creamy fruit that's about 80% fat and it tastes like cream cheese and it is delicious, but it has to be ripe. So it opens up, it has like an orange colored pot, which opens up when it's ripe and it has creamy flesh and black seeds. And you don't eat anything apart from the flesh and any little sort of fibrous bits in between the seed, which you don't eat. And the flesh, take that all off. Just eat the creamy flesh. And it's absolutely delicious. But if Aki's picked under right before it's fully opened, it contains substances that cause people to become severely, severely 
hypoglycemic and they they die because they have they haven't got the energy for their body to to work um so you have to be careful with some fruits but in general if a fruit's properly ripe and it's not toxic so nature is very intelligent it all kind of makes sense yeah. and i really like that it all makes sense why would why I would an aki why would an aki kill people well it won't kill you if you eat it when it's ripe now if you pick an underripe aki the seeds probably won't be viable so the plant the tree has gone to all that trouble put all that energy all that nutrition into creating a beautiful fruit and seeds that it wants distributed if you pick it when it's not properly ripe those seeds won't be viable they won't grow hey but what if that that tree has the intelligence to put something in there that only makes that fruit edible when it's properly ripe. And after a while, people will realize that if they eat underripe ackee, they'll get sick. They won't pick it. It won't ripen properly. They'll only pick it when it's ripe. And then it's delicious. It's nutritious and it won't harm them. And in, in the same kind of vein, when ackee's overripe, it can make you sick, but not as sick as when it's underripe. So the, the ackee tree wants you to pick its fruit when the seeds are perfectly viable, when they're not underdone, when they're not overdone. So it all kind of makes sense. Um, and I love that about the fruit diet because it is rational. It's very spiritual to me, but it's also very rational. I read in your book that you've done a series of different cleansers, and I'd love to talk in a little bit more about that and juicing um, as well. So I didn't I didn't know whether you'd actually done water fasting, if that was something that you'd incorporated into your transition, but you'd done 52 days on juice and two different grape mono diets. And then several months, I think it was six months on melon only. Can you talk about those different experiences and each different cleanse that you did? What was the difference that you felt from an emotional, mental and physical perspective on each of the different cleanses? So talking first about water fasting, well, I never did water fasting in my transition because I was pregnant and then breastfeeding. And I also, then I had children. So I had, um, my children were 12 and a half years apart. So it was always like I had a job and I had children to look after and it never seemed the right time. And I was a single mother for most of this. It never seemed the right time to be able to, to go on water fast. Cause I always thought when you water fast, you need to lie down, you need to rest completely. Mm-hmm. And when you've got kids, it's, it's not something you really do. You know, mom, I'm just fasting. <laughs> Leave me alone. Mom. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not really viable. And so I didn't do water fasting, but then when my younger son, he was about three or four and I just didn't feel hungry one day and I thought, I'm not going to eat. And then the next day I didn't feel hungry. And I just felt it. Well, I didn't plan it. I just felt like seeing how far this would go. And my energy was fine because he was three or four at the time. And I was looking after him and it's like, you know, and I was doing some work as well. And it was, well, you know, I can't lie down, so I'll just see how it goes. I'm not planning to do it for X amount of days, but I'll carry on as long as it feels good. And in the end, I did two weeks of water fasting while not lying down, while looking after a child, while That's walking, amazing. working. And I did feel sometimes my energy wasn't so good, and I would deep breathe, and I found that really helped. If I felt like a lack of energy, it was almost like feed me, breathing in deeply. And... um that was a wonderful experience. And I, when I sort of broke the the fast, it was like I felt like a rebirth. It was like um, it was a really amazing experience. And I'm really glad that I did it. But it was nothing that was planned because I thought I can't, I you know, when I do mono diets, I'm fine. I have a lot of energy. 
And I would like to do more water fasting. I've done like short water fast, you know, one or two days or even three days, but I'd never done anything like 14 days. And it was it was great. I, I really, really, it was like a emotional and physical rebirth. I can't really put it into words, but it was. I understand. I've wonderful. done some myself, so yeah. I, I, I get it. Wonderful. Um, and then with doing mono diets. Mm. So when I was in the UK, I tended to do long extended um, melon diets because from like mid spring, really, till sort of mid autumn, you can almost, that whole period, you can get really good quality European melons. And often I do things for Lent and I'm not like a traditional Christian, but I do think the Lenten period can be a period where we can refine our diet or, you know, it's it's kind of spiritual time, the 40 days. And I started off doing melons for Lent. So it was going to be 40 days and I just was enjoying it so much. The melons were great quality. So I went on and did six months. And the only reason I stopped was because the melons were stopping the european melons so i didn't have that supply it wasn't because i was bored of the melons or i felt unwell um i had really good energy doing the melon mono diet and on day 47 i went into a walkathon and there was i think there was four thousand people and it was for charity and um so it was, I think, 30 kilometers anyway. And I didn't like walking a lot anyway. And I was walking and I was just, I'm not really normally that competitive. I, I don't tend to go in races. I do things by myself <laughs> anyway. So I was on day 47 of the Mellon Monitor. I felt really good. And I just felt like I'm going to go for this. And as, as, as I went on, went on, and you pass people and you pass people and you get to the source, you know, the, the sort of the like have different stages and this person sitting there and they say, oh, there's this. 12 people ahead of you and then it was like oh there's two people ahead of you oh there's one person ahead of you and I, I really was just powering along and there were triathletes and it was only walking you couldn't run you had to walk and I just thought I'm going to go for this and yeah and I came in first oh, and wow. um and I was oh I was in my 30s at the time and there were a lot younger people there but I thought, well, there's proof because some people, even in the raw movement will say you can't live on melons there's not enough calories in them yeah. but yeah, if you get good quality fruit, there was for me anyway. And um, so, yeah, so the melons were a great experience um, and, it, and enjoyable. It's not like people you're denying yourself. I, mm. And when your senses refine and your taste buds get used to fruit, each melon tastes different. Mm. You know, if you buy a can of baked beans, a Heinz baked beans, wherever, whichever supermarket you buy it from, it tastes the same. Mm. But each melon is different. So... It's like, well, how can you get bored when each piece of fruit is an individual and it's mm-hmm. each got its own little nuances? And even if you buy two melons from the same, you know, that have come from the same plant, they're both different. They've been in a different position in the sun. They've grown slightly differently. So melons were always really a great monodiet for me when I was in the UK. But moving to Australia and being in the subtropics, watermelons grow really well, but other melons tend to get mildew and you don't get so many good local melons and for me I always like to do a mix of melons I felt that watermelons were a bit low in sodium but the other melon varieties especially near the skin and if a melon's ripe you can eat really near the skin that's where you get a lot of the minerals when a melon's picked under ripe and it will sometimes ripen a bit you'll often find that you can't really eat close to the skin because it's too hard but a nicely ripe melon 
the closer to the skin you can get, that's where a lot of the minerals are. And they are, they do have a relatively good amount of sodium in for a fruit. So I never experienced any electrolyte imbalances mm-hmm. on a melon diet, mono diet, including all varieties of melons. For me personally, I've done four days just on watermelon. I think that's the longest I've gone. But I think long term, you could get a bit of imbalance in your electrolytes because it's not got a lot of sodium in for a long-term monodiet. So moving to Australia, my preferred monodiet became orange juice because I could always get organic oranges all throughout the year and good quality oranges, um, whereas I couldn't rely on getting enough good quality melons to do an extended monodiet. And I had done one long orange juice diet in the UK and that was really my first extended mono diet and after that that was 52 days and that was a couple of years into doing the fruit diet and I did that because of oh I want to do a long orange mono diet and I didn't really know anything about it I was on the fruit diet but I didn't know anything really about mono diets and I and come on you join me we'll do it together and I thought oh, well I had so I had no expectations yes you know I'll, I'll join them let's see what happens and my friend ended up didn't, he didn't even do one day because he ended up drinking coffee and having mashed potato. But I thought, oh, I like this, I'll carry on. And I carried on and I thought, this is great. And I only stopped because I was losing a lot of weight. I had more energy. I had more stamina than usual. Right. You know, doing exercises. And I, I sort of measured different exercises. So I had more strength, more stamina. I felt brilliant. But I did lose a lot of weight. And I think that was a real clearing out period. But I felt great. But anyway, I stopped after 52 days. For a lot of the diet, I'd been camping on Sark, which is one of the Channel Islands between France and England. And I hadn't looked in a mirror and I hadn't got on a scale. Anyway, so I'd been camping. The last few days, I stayed in a guest house and they had scales and they had a mirror. And I thought, oh my goodness, you know, looking at myself, I had no real conception that I did look very, very thin. And that my weight was the lowest it had ever been as an, as an adult. And I was like, oh, but anyway, so I stopped. And one thing that told me I'd stopped too early was that I broke the diet on some of my dad's green gauges, which from his allotment, which were delicious. And they were just one of my favorite they? fruits. What are they? They're a type of plum. They're a oh, type of plum with okay. a green gauge. And they are really, really delicious. The best best ones I've ever had, and very sweet when they're ripe, and just wonderful flavour, and it tasted like ashes in mouth. It tasted of nothing, and then I tried a mango, and it was a good mango that I'd, I'd bought, a nice organic mango, and that tasted like nothing. And I thought I've broken the diet too early, whereas other times when I've yeah when I've broken an orange juice mono diet, and I felt like this is the time, you know, not listening to other people saying well you should finish it now yep. but listening to my own body and I've broken it say on a really ripe persimmon and it's oh it's tasted so good mm. but anyhow even though I think I could have gone on longer and done more cleansing when I finished that diet and I'd gone in with no expectations because I'd only done it to accompany a friend initially and carried on because it felt good and it was interesting and I was enjoying it so I didn't think, oh, I'm going to go into this site and I'm going to get this benefit or that benefit. It was just no expectations. And when I finished it, I found that my digestive system was working so much more effectively and just the transition time of fruit. But I also felt that fruit was doing me so much more good. And it wasn't, it was a feeling. 
And what happened was that I needed to eat about half the amount of fruit as I needed to eat before I did the mono diet. So what I think happened was that my whole digestive system healed and rebalanced during that initial orange juice mono diet and that I was assimilating because we talk about calories, but assimilation is so vital. And I think I'm I'm really surprised that it's not mentioned more mm. assimilation because you've got one person I agree. and they've got a, a, a poorly functioning digestive system. They might have been bottle fed as a baby, given a lot of antibiotics. Mm. They might have taken a lot of recreational drugs, eaten a lot of um, wheat, a lot of processed foods. And they might have damaged villi. Now, the villi are the little finger-like microscopic projections in our digestive system, and they increase the surface area. If they're damaged, our surface area of our gut is smaller. And if it's smaller, it's less effective at assimilating. So you might have person A, and they've you know had a bit of a compromised life in terms of health and wellness. And so they eat 5,000 calories a day, but they're only absorbing 20% of what they're eating. Mm. But you might get second person who's been brought up on a pretty whole food, plant-based diet, been breastfed, taken very little allopathic or recreational drugs, hasn't, you know, eaten a lot of processed foods, and they might eat 2,000 calories, but assimilate 90% of what they're eating. So person... B may actually be assimilating more macro and micronutrients than person A. And we always talk about calories. How many calories are you eating? How many calories do you need? But so much of that depends on what's going on inside us, how much we're assimilating. And when we, to me, it's bad science, just looking at one part of the equation, just looking at what's going in and not the process that's happening on all the reactions that are going on in our body. So person A may need to have 5,000 calories, even on a raw food diet, because they're not assimilating so much. But when they say everybody needs to eat 5,000 calories a day, that's when issues happen. Because person B, 2,000 calories works very well for them. And if they eat 5,000 calories, they're going to gain weight and not feel so good. But person A, if they eat 2,000 calories, they're going to lose weight and feel undernourished. So both people are correct. Both people are getting the right amount of calories. But there's big differences because the way they're assimilating their food. And you know, I think that there's other things that affect how much we need to eat, such as our activity level, our gender, the percentage of adipose to muscular tissue, our metabolic rate, our lifestyle, our age, many things. But assimilation is so very important. So it wasn't something that I was looking into before I did the extended orange juice monodiet, but certainly it was a turning point for me because I found I didn't need to eat so much concentrated food either. Whereas before I'd needed to eat seeds, nuts, avocados to maintain my weight. Wow. Afterwards, I just could eat a, a lesser quantity of juicy fruit and maintain my weight. I always had good energy, but in terms of maintaining my weight and, and now really looking back on it, I do think my digestive system healed and I was able to assimilate so much better. So I didn't need to eat so much to maintain my weight because I was assimilating macronutrients. So the carbohydrates, proteins, and fats, mm. but also the micronutrients, the vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants. I was assimilating them better as well, which is why I felt a whole lot better. 
So, yeah, for, for, for me, it was a, a pivotal point. And then moving to Australia and not having the melons available, my extended mono diets have been mostly, I have done papaya, but for nine days. I have done mostly orange juice extended diets because that's what I can access. Mm-hmm. Oranges, good quality, organic. And I think that's important when you're considering, if you do decide to do a mono diet, consider what's available are you attracted to it? It's no good if there's loads of wonderful organic oranges available, but you're not attracted to citrus. Mm. So you've got to be attracted to it. It's got to be available. It's got to be of good quality. Mm. And then you can make a decision on what fruit to monodot. And I don't think there's anyone that's better than others. Orange juice can be aggressive. I found like papaya is quite a gentle. I didn't need to eat many papaya to maintain my weight. It's a very gentle. Melons as well. I didn't lose weight on a melon monodot. I didn't lose weight on papayas. Orange juice, I still lose some weight when I go on oranges. I think they're quite aggressive. I think they stir up all kinds of things. I think they have a deeper healing or help the body to have a deeper healing because it's the body that's healing. Um, probably not as aggressive as a water fast, but still up there. And But, but you also get energy. So you're also getting you know, carbohydrates from your orange juice. So for me, having children to look after, mm. orange monodots, I've always exercised, I've worked, I've looked after kids, and I've been able to do all my daily activities. And the thing is, a lot of people can't water fast if they've got children to look after, if they can't afford it, because really to do an extended water fast, it's really advisable to be supervised unless you've had a lot of cleansing experience. And there's the cost of it. There's the time pit. Some people can't take time off work, whereas a mono diet you can regulate it and also you can regulate the elimination more, not totally, but with a water fast, Arnold Eric said, you're on God's operating table. Mm-hmm. You don't really know what the elimination is going to be and you can't really change it. If you drink more water, that won't slow down the elimination. Whereas doing a mono diet, the more you eat, the less severe the elimination. So if you've got an acute healing problem, you'll probably have a smaller amount of fruit If you just want to do a bit of cleansing, but you want to have a lot of energy, you can have more. So you can regulate that. If you're eliminating too much, you can have more fruit. If you think I'm not really eliminating enough, you can have less. So there was a doctor in the 1920s and 30s, Dr. Frank McCoy, and he was um, a medical doctor in the United States. And he actually had a syndicated newspaper column. And he's written a book called um, The Fast Way to Health. And he put all sorts of people on orange juice monodiets to cure all kinds or help their bodies cure all kinds of of health issues from earache to um, eye problems to arthritis, all sorts of things. And his patients had the juice of one orange every two hours or two glasses of orange juice a day. So it was almost like a camouflage fast. They weren't having huge amounts. And Moving on to like the grape diet. So with the grape diet, yeah, I did. Again, I didn't lose weight on the grape diet. One thing I found, I did two lots of 20 days mm-hmm. on grapes. Both times my resting pulse went down to 42. My resting pulse is normally around 60, sometimes a bit more, sometimes a little. But and no other monodiet has it gone down to 42, which is pretty low. So that's a side effect I noticed of the grapes. And I did enjoy the grapes. When they're in season, they're a really delicious, nice monodiet to do. But again, it's accessing good quality grapes, ones with seeds in preferably, organic preferably. 
But Joanna Brand, she gave her patients between one and four pounds of grapes a day, which isn't a huge lot. But she found that if she gave her patients less, it was too little. If she gave them more, they didn't heal successfully. So a lot of the time, if you want to heal on a Mondar, it's not having huge amounts. If you just want to do a bit of a tune-up, if you want to have lots of energy and do a bit of clearing up of the system, have big amounts. But gallons and gallons of orange juice a day will not give the healing benefits of smaller amounts. So it depends, but you can alter that. Some people don't want to have a healing crisis. They don't want to do a lot of elimination. They want to have more energy, but at the same time, do some kind of cleansing. So I think the monodiets is very useful. Yeah, it's. I find it very interesting that you lost more weight on the oranges and it's contrary to what everybody really thinks because everyone everyone tells you oranges are so full of sugar, you'll put on weight. And yet when you're on the watermelon cleanse or the melon cleanse, you didn't lose any weight. So mm. is it something to do with the level of yes. fiber and the, the astringent property in the citrus that just go in and just do the sweet, do the full clean? What, what do you attribute that to? I think this... I think there's certain acids in citrus because if you look at just calories, I think you can't just look at calories because I would be having more calories or as many as with the melon. The melon and the papaya, well, actually, when you looked at my calories, well, how do you maintain your weight on so few calories? And But I have done, I'd have three good-sized papayas or medium, not huge, a day on my papaya diet and I didn't lose weight just three papaya so if you looked at the calories that was that like 600 calories a day 700 how can you not Very lose high. weight yeah and it's there's other things there's other things i think there's things that we don't know you can't just look at calories but with orange juice that have more but i think the acids i think the acids and the some substances in oranges that are quite aggressive and they stir up stored poisons they cause elimination and the fact that Dr. Frank McCoy, he used other fruits as well, but the fruit he used the most to help his patients was orange juice. And when I juice oranges, when I first did it, I used to juice them by hand, but strain them through a muslin bag. So there was no real much fiber in them. And I didn't notice the difference. Now I always leave the fiber in. I've got an old hand juicer and it makes a smooth juice but it leaves the fiber in. And when you look at the shell of the orange, there's hardly anything left in it. So it's not that much fiber that you lose. Mm -hmm. But I haven't noticed the difference between leaving the fiber in or taking it out. No, I tend to leave the fiber in. I don't strain it. But when I did strain it, I still seem to have very similar effects, apart from I had fewer bowel movements when I strained it. And so, so what do you yeah. think about all of these juice cleansers where you're getting, because I've been to many different juice uh, health oh. retreats, and done reviews on different properties and so forth. And you get six different juices a day, but they're, they've got five or six ingredients in each one. What's your perspective on that? Do you think keeping it simple is better and having one ingredient per juice? Or do you think it's okay to, you know, to do certain blends? I think it's important to find what works for you. Mm -hmm. Some people might think, I don't want to just go on orange juice. It's too restrictive. I feel better when I put more veggies in. I feel my blood sugar feels more balanced. And especially if you're using an electric juice, which takes the fiber out, it might be that having all fruit juices, it's very different when you're hand juicing and you've got fiber in your orange juice. I think it's always about what works for you as an individual. Because something works for me, I'm, I can't say that that's the best for you. Some people do long extended uh, mixed juice regimes and they find that they can go on that regime from 
many weeks, many months, and that really helps them and it works for them. So I wouldn't say, well, don't mix your juices. For me, I like mono juice. I like mono darts. That works for me and I like the simplicity of it. But if mixed juices works for you, it enables you to do the amount of time that your body needs to heal then I think I think that's fine. I think if you use an electric juicer, that's fine if it works for you. And there has been so many people that have lost a lot of weight because they've had more weight on their bodies than optimal for them and they wanted to lose weight. Through going on extended juice fast, they've healed all kinds of issues and it works for them and their health's been good. And I think with anything, monitor each day. Like sometimes I'll say I want to do a a 40-day orange juice diet for Lent. But if 20 days in, it's not working for me, I won't continue, even though mostly I don't plan how long I'm going to do it for. I assess it each day. Is it working for me? Am I feeling good? Have I got energy? It's about assessing things. So if you do any long mono diet, any long juice diet, I think you've got to be aware of not saying, I'm going to do 100 days on juice, and then 80 days in, you're starting to have health issues, then it's not to me, optimal to just stick out a certain length of time. I think always assess how something's working for you and make changes if you need to and, and be flexible on that. And because something works for somebody else, somebody might say, oh, you know, I watched this video and this person's done 100 days on vegetable and fruit juices. And oh, and then they try and they do four days and it, it's not working. Then that's fine. It's nothing they haven't failed. It's nothing wrong. It's just what works for one person may not work for another. And I think you can listen to a thousand people, you can read a thousand books, but your body, your own body is your best teacher. If you listen to your body and your needs, and we have, I think if we were all fifth or sixth generation fruitarians, we'd all have very similar needs. We'd all, you know, have similar needs for B12. We'd all have probably a lack of dental issues. We'd all have you know a, a similar amount of food that we probably need to eat but because going back generations and our own past life mm-hmm. not not past life but past this life um that causes changes in dna what we causes change in our DNA, our DNA affects us genetically so we really are what we eat and so people have, have different you know, different needs. And some people will say, you you don't need to supplement B12 because I've never supplemented and I'm fine. But another person may need to, and that person may say, oh, you have to supplement B12 because I was deficient in it. Why my B12 was low? But another person may not need to. And Arnold Eric said that the reason most people failed at fasting and the fruit diet is through individual needs not being taken into consideration and over time so not just the fact that we have individual needs but over time our needs might change we might have a time when we need more greens or we need more fatty foods or we need more ph acidic fruits and things aren't static and it's very important to look every day assess what we're doing is it working for us do we need to change anything um and and just yeah i think individual needs is really really important any kind of diet or lifestyle in terms of your transition at first going to raw vegan what was your biggest learning and what would you do differently if you could if you were to give some advice to somebody else what would make the journey and the transition easier for you um i think going at your own pace is important and not having you know like because somebody else took so many months to transition 
And I felt a little bit pressurized, I think, because my friends had gone straight on the fruit diet. I was doing this long transition, but that's what worked for me. And it was important for me to listen to my own body and not feel, oh, well, they're better than me because they've gone straight onto the fruit diet. And here am I doing this extended transitional period. So I think, and I did stick with that extended transitional period, but I think having faith, having more faith and thinking, well, somebody else is doing it differently, but that's fine. That's okay. Don't feel pressurized and think, well, you know, I should be jumping in into it straight away. Some person might find that that's the best way for them to do it straight away. They might find if they do a transitional diet, they'll be forever having 20% cooked food when they'd really prefer to be having 100% raw. And if they want to have 20% cooked food, then, you know, that's not an issue. But if they wanted to get to 100% raw, or some people find that in the transition diet, they start eating more and more cooked food. So they start off with, say, 20% cooked, then it goes to 30, then it goes to 40, then it goes to 50, 60, and it keeps going up. And so that person might be better just saying, right, I'm going to go straight on to 100% raw. But I think, yeah, having, you know, I was, I was fairly young at the time and having more faith that what I was doing was right for me. And I did stick with it. So I'm pleased that I stuck with that extended transition. But at times I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe I should just be going straight into the fruit. But I think because I was pregnant, in a way, that was fortunate for me because I was pregnant. I did the transition. I think if I hadn't been pregnant, I would have gone along with my friends and gone straight onto a fruit diet. And I think long term, I might not have been successful. I think long term, I might have thought, oh, no, this doesn't work for me. And then gone off the fruit diet, whereas that transition period for me was helpful. So I think, yeah, don't judge yourself by other people. Right. What they're doing is fine for them. What you're doing, if it's working for you, is fine for you. So I think that's important. Yeah. Amazing. And lastly, do you have any special advice or a book that's inspired you or some resources or tools that you think would be fantastic guides for other people? I think for me, excuse me, right. I think David Shelley's book was my starting point, but he was very much influenced by Arnold Errett. Okay. And Arnold Errett's books are very widely available. And so Rational fasting and the mucus diet healing system. There's a few points that I don't agree with. And I think you have to bear in mind that, you know, this was a sort of like the, the later part of the 19th century. And some views might seem a bit outdated or even a bit sexist or racist today. So I don't agree 100% with Arnold Eric, but the vast majority of his dietary advice, I feel, you know, very much in alignment with. And, um, I would definitely recommend his works. You can get them for a couple of dollars secondhand, often secondhand bookshops or on Amazon or on Abe Books or even on eBay. You don't have to pay a lot. I would definitely recommend his books. I would also recommend Maurice Crock, who was a South African who wrote Fruit, the Food and Medicine for Man. His book's quite hard to get hold of, okay. but if you can get hold of it or read a PDF copy of it, I don't have a PDF copy of it, then I would recommend his work. And I would also recommend Essie Honnable, mm -hmm. who we talked about earlier, I Live on Fruit. And her book, again, it can be quite hard to get hold of. I think often now some people do these printing on demand or these PDF copies flying about. But her advice is lovely. And she writes very warmly and um yeah, and, and she goes through her struggles and what happened to her. And it's a very engaging read. It's not a particular scientific read. Um, Arnold Eretz is a bit more scientific. Maurice Crock 
it is a, a little bit as well, but I see Honorables is more just her experiences and what worked for her. And it's a very engaging book. So those books, I think, are the, are the sort of foundations for me. And that's what I read. And that's what got those books got me into this diet. And I still read and research things all the time. I've been on this diet for you know, 31 years, but I'm still discovering new things. I'm still excited and I still very much value scientific articles that back up the fruitarian diet. And there are them. People say say there isn't, but there is science backing up fruit. So yeah, look for it. Do your own research. Amazing. Do you think it's the best decision you've ever made? Has it been the biggest blessing in your life? Apart from my children and my husband, of yes, course, course. yes, but yes. yes, but but as a decision in terms of health and well-being, yes. I feel very blessed, and I feel very blessed that I was on the path that allowed me to to meet David Shelley yes. and to be in a position where I was with other people and we had the social support. We were able to access this great quality fruit, and I do because like. I can still do what I want to do. I can still go. I run 10 kilometers every other day and I can get up in the morning and can do that. And I don't, I want to be able to do what I want to do. I can work all day outside on the the garden if I need to work outside on the garden. Wake up in the morning and I feel good. And yes, at the end of the day, if I've been running and I've been gardening, I might feel physically tired, but in a nice way. And I wake up the next morning and I'll be ready to go again. And I think that's our birthright. I think everybody's birthright is to have good health. I'm not saying everybody should be a fruitarian. You have to find what works for you. But certainly it's everyone's birthright to have good health and throughout our lives because the human body, I believe, is designed perfectly and it only malfunctions because of issues with either our gene because of our parents or our grandparents or ourselves. I believe that... The design is not faulty. It's what's happened, how we've treated the design. So, yeah, I think we we should all have abundant and blessed health. And I hope that more people are able to have that and also to empower themselves and take control of their own health. Don't give it away to anybody else, whoever that is, whether it's a, you know, a, a naturopath or a doctor or a nurse or another person and take control yourself and realize that you are in control of your health. I agree. And I can't thank you enough for your time. You've been absolutely amazing. You're such a wealth of information and knowledge. And I'm very, very grateful that you've been here today with us to answer so many questions. And I know that we could chat for hours. I'd love to have you back again, maybe to talk about dental hygiene and also spirituality, two topics that are really important. And I've just thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I've learned so much from you. Please tell us where can everybody find you on social media and your website. And I'll link everything in the description box below. And where can they get your book? Um, yeah, I send out a free PDF copy of my book. Um, it's not in hard copy at the moment because I'm trying to find a good green printer that uses all environmental practices and inks and everything. So that's something potentially in the future. But I'll send out a free PDF copy. And if you email me at fruitbatann at yahoo.com, mm-hmm. then I'll send you a free PDF copy. Also, if you'd like a free PDF copy of David Shelley's book, I have that in PDF and I also send that out for free. So do let me know. Um, I'm on Facebook, um, Anne Osborne Fruit Bat Anne, I think is my little sort of um, bit on the URL. And I share a lot of fruit information on there. I've got albums on there of 
clippings, old newspaper clippings about fruit and fruitarian diets. I try to put out a lot of pictures of fruit and information. I've got fruit art as well, albums there. Uh, so that's a good place to connect with me. And I'm also on Instagram, Fruit is Butte, I believe, on Instagram. Um, and I do put some content on there as well. And my website, which I've been a bit negligent of recently, <laughs> but I do have articles on there, is fruitgod.com. So there's information on there and also my contact details. So fantastic. Yeah, thank, you. thank you very much again. And that's very generous of you to offer to send out the books to people. So I'll definitely put that in the description below. All right. Yeah. I'm going to say goodbye. Thank you so much again for your time. And I will speak to you very soon. Thank you so much. It's been okay. a pleasure. Thank Take you very much. Bye bye. Bye. Well, what a fantastic conversation that was with Anne Osborne today. I want to thank all of you for being here and joining us for this time. And do me a favor, if you like this video, please give it a big thumbs up, like, subscribe, and hit the notification bell so you don't miss any future videos. I'm going to be coming live to you every week with a new interview and some raw vegan cooking demonstrations and recipes. So make sure you hit that notification so you don't miss out. And I will see you soon. Bye for now.